Hi, I'm Deirdre Veldon and this is Confronting Coronavirus, a daily podcast on the COVID-19 outbreak. As a mark of thanks and respect to the workers in the front line. Last night, across the country, people showed their gratitude for the effort and sacrifice of our healthcare workers. In today's episode, I talked to Dr. Oshin O'Connell. Dr. O'Connell is a respiratory consultant at the Bon Secours Hospital in Cork. And he and other doctors here in Ireland are in regular contact with their counterparts in Italy and China, finding out what works and what doesn't in the fight against the virus, and then sharing that information, often via WhatsApp. So what have we learned from the doctors of Wuhan and of Lombardy? And how have these interactions prepared our healthcare system for what is to come? Oshin, you're on the front lines. Are you happy with how the government is handling the crisis so far? Um, I'm I, actually generally quite happy with the government. I mean, the government was given a very difficult situation, which was outside of their control. There's no possible scenario where there isn't going to be a surge in hospital bed or ICU capacity. And even with the best advice from public health doctors and epidemiologists in the world, there, there's no perfect solution to this. So the government were put in a very difficult position. And to be fair to them, they've taken the action. They cancelled Paddy's Day on the correct time. They closed the schools, universities, and then they recognised what was happening across Europe and recognised that they needed to take more stringent measures. Otherwise, we'd be facing the same thing. So I suppose there's been some prediction modelling suggesting that the measures the government has taken will probably actually result in a threefold reduction in the overall mortality. There's no model in the world where there isn't going to be a high mortality from this COVID, but actually the measures the government has taken so far is going to reduce the predicted mortality if they'd done nothing by about 3.5 fold. So you have to commend them on that. So you're working as a respiratory consultant in, in the Bon Secours in Cork. What's your view on how the hospital is managing the treatment of COVID-19 patients? I suppose we've all known from kind of the early warnings coming out of China what was coming towards us. And I suppose the more we've seen it spread across Asia and into Europe, the more we started to prepare. Um, We've been planning since probably the start of February in particular, the kind of the surge that's going to happen in our ICUs. We've been planning our personal protective equipment lines. And actually, we've been looking to see in terms of what our role will be in the city and how we can help uh, the other hospitals across the city and how best to provide for our local population. Um, So I must say that we're as well prepared as you can be, but I think simultaneously we're all expecting a potential tsunami and from the experience from abroad, they say it comes upon you so quickly that there's nothing you can do to fully prepare you for it. What kind of patients are you seeing now in the hospital in in critical condition? We're still in the early days in Ireland and certainly some of our colleagues have been presenting nationally on kind of the presentations in terms of the younger patients and how they present and what to look out for. Um, I think we need to recognise that this isn't just a condition affecting elderly people, unfortunately, because of different factors in terms of innate immunity, in terms of underlying illnesses. Um, And actually just downright bad luck, uh, just genetic factors, young adults can still get this, you know, and and it can result in high mortality even in young people. 
I suppose one of the warnings that's come out from Europe is actually that there's a called a biphasic part to this condition. Biphasic means you can present one way initially, meaning you can have fevers, temperatures, cough, and that can go on for between one and eight days. And actually people can take a sudden dramatic turn in the illness and actually can actually become critical in a space of time. So the starting illness and the latter part of the illness can actually behave quite differently. And we're starting to recognize why that might be. Uh, and that actually can be quite variable in a lot of people. And there's some kind of suggestion that the initial exposure dose, that if you were exposed high and didn't practice social distancing, that actually that initial severity of exposure may ultimately affect your uh, ending up on a ventilator or on life support. You mentioned the lower the viral load, the less ill a person might become. Explain that to us. Um, the, the postulate, there, there's two theories on that one. One is if you get a smaller dose in the initial setting, it may give your own innate immune system time to adapt, meaning the longer your own immune system has time to fight the virus uh, may actually mean that your body can control it and that it results in a less severe disease. So if you're exposed to a high viral load or essentially what are called virulent particles, um, your body may not have time to adapt. And actually, by the time your body has recognized that this is a foreign intruder, the virus has got so many copies inside in your system that it is causing damage. The second part of that is the part of your body that the virus may enter initially, meaning there's some belief that if it enters kind of the nasal cavity versus the lung uh, first, that it may have different consequences. So it may, if you have a low inhalation through your nose at a low dose, may give your body time to adapt before it reaches the lung. Whereas there's some belief that if it starts out in the lung and gets into the lung by a, a large inhalation at the get-go, that it may be more detrimental to your body. So that's why we're talking about the social distancing and actually keeping space from people around you, particularly in the context that in the early parts of the illness, nobody knows who has it and actually other people could be infective. So one of the theories on the herd immunity concept is that actually a small low dose exposure in society uh, may prevent people ultimately infecting other people. So that's what the English were talking about in terms of their mitigation or herd immunity strategy. The number of people uh, who have died as a result of the virus, Oshin, looks low in this country uh, so far. Are you saying that that is already a result of the, the kind of prudent strategy adopted? I, I think we have taken as prudent measures as we can. Unfortunately, this is an exponential curve. And what an exponential curve means is, is the doubling time of the number of cases can double every three to four days. So there's two things. There's a lag time between actually being exposed and becoming sick. So you'll often see it in coming in waves, meaning some people will just have mild symptoms for the first seven to 10 days, and then they'll suddenly present with a bad pneumonitis or bad respiratory failure and end up uh, requiring a hospitalization and often end up in critical care. And the second thing is there's a lag time between the measures you take 
at a public health measures, meaning the kind of implications of cancelling schools, cancelling universities and the restricting your daily social interactions. You may not see the benefits of that for three to four weeks yet. And these are all things that we're learning from other countries. I think one of the lessons Italy learned, and they're still on the rapid ascendancy of their curve, is they may have implemented those measures too late and you know, it may result in a higher mortality because those measures were implemented so late. So we are still a period of time ahead of Italy. It's actually quite hard to tell exactly what period that time is, but irrespective of what we've done, and I do think we've done it decisively and promptly, I think we're still going to get a surge and that surge is going to hurt. So as time goes on, we're hearing more worrying news about shortages in particular shortages of personal protective equipment. Is that an issue for you? Um, we're very fortunate in terms of our supply line at the moment. Um, I think we, we've got a, a person on our kind of board, uh, Dr. Paul O'Brien, who's been assisting us getting uh, equipment from China through kind of private routes. There, there seems to be two routes in terms of kind of contacts in China. There's a government-to-government route and there is a private institute to private uh, factories and they both seem to work through slightly different supply chains. I think the USA and Europe have simultaneously turned to China and instantaneously and all of a sudden all countries are asking for the same piece of equipment and no matter how much you increase your production, you can't meet the needs of the world simultaneously. Oisín, we also have a shortage of intensive care beds for critically ill patients. Um, have we done any enough to address that ahead of the surge? I think starting out, Ireland was relatively low in terms of our critical care beds. Ireland and England had similar numbers. We're talking about six ICU beds per 100,000 population. To put that in context, Italy has 11 uh, ICU beds per 100,000 population. Germany has 29 uh, ICU beds per 100,000 population. There, there was a big uh, prediction model came out of the Imperial College in London, and they suggested that if we did nothing, meaning if we took no public health measures, we would face a 30-fold increase in ICU bed numbers. Um, by taking population um, and public health measures, meaning social distancing, actually reducing our daily interactions, they said even with the best prediction models, we face an eight-fold increase in our ICU beds. So if we didn't increase our ICU bed numbers nationally, at least eightfold, even with good compliance with the public health measures, we would actually be facing eight people competing for every one bed. So we've certainly increased our number of ventilators significantly. We've increased our non-invasive ventilation numbers. Uh, Whether it's going to be enough, I think only time is going to tell that one. A major and growing concern is the number of healthcare workers, doctors and nurses that are getting sick with COVID-19. That's a very real issue. And, and I think if we are to learn any lessons from Italy and from China, it's they, they found that of the initial cases, up to about a third of cases uh, happened to healthcare workers. Um, we've certainly been sharing a lot of strategies nationally as to how we can mitigate against that. And the shared experience of those other countries has been instrumental in putting in place different ways that Ireland is going to deal with that. 
Um, there's there's several different strategies that we're looking at currently uh, to try and reduce that. I mean, even some of my colleagues uh, were looking at getting these uh, perspex incubation boxes done, kind of negative pressure rooms, kind of triaging or grading personal protective equipment by area of the hospital. So we, we definitely will have learned lessons from other countries in, in terms of reducing that. But uh, whether that'll be enough or not is to be uh, assessed. What is a negative pressure room? Um, what we recognise about this virus is that there is kind of a area of virion or aerosol around a person that is excreting or infected with this. So essentially, um, the reason we're talking about a kind of a two metre distance in terms of social distancing is actually that the even the aerosol around an infected person could potentially infect another person. Um, a negative pressure room is a room where actually the particles in the room actually are, are don't get dispersed into the room and actually get dispersed out so that it reduces the chance of the aerosols actually infecting healthcare professionals and other people in the room. Before the first case of coronavirus in Ireland, you set up a WhatsApp group to share information between doctors and specialists. As time went on, there was a need to share that information with the public, so politicians and journalists were added in. Tell us about the role of WhatsApp in the coronavirus response. I, I suppose there's lots and lots of WhatsApp groups going around about COVID, but I suppose one of the groups I was initially involved in kind of was it with uh, three doctors, Donald Hearn, uh, Dr Nick Flynn and Dr Paul O'Brien. And then there was a few other people, uh, Brian Murphy, who's an IT guy, and my brother and a few other people were kind of heavily involved. And over time, we started adding in more respiratory consultants, intensive care doctors, infectious disease doctors, and general practitioners around Ireland. Then we realized, actually, that there was a lot of threads coming through and a lot of useful information that we could all learn from each other. So we started adding in the universities. We got representatives from the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, the Irish Hospital Consultants Association, the IMO, the IMO, the ICGP, the Pharmaceutical Society of Ireland, as well as public health. And then actually, interestingly, just people from the WHO and UNICEF joined it. So we, we, we reached about 120 people in the group. And then we realised, actually, we're having so many interesting discussions here that we need to get it out to the general public. And actually, the speed of information and the daily change in narrative and even the lessons we learn from other countries is changing every day. So... We then started adding in journalists and then somebody would add in somebody from RTE. And uh, ultimately, then we added in representatives from the major political parties. So suddenly we've all got consistent messaging and we're all sharing publicly available documents and lessons learned from other countries. Uh, and I must say, it's been a fascinating group to be involved in. Um, and we kind of gave a lot of people admin rights. So if they thought somebody would be useful for the group, uh, they could add in somebody into the group. And suddenly it became kind of, key opinion leaders across multiple different areas representing multiple different bodies. And each of us is in our own probably subgroup, meaning a hospital subgroup or a specialist area subgroup. And we can feed information back into those groups um, as well as helping get kind of messages out to the public through the group. So it's it's been a fantastic forum for sharing ideas and sharing information. So medics from, uh, you know, China and Lombardy were able to share their experiences uh, into this group. What, what did you learn from that? What key things did you take from that? 
we've actually had fantastic uh, lessons learned from both countries. Uh, in fact, we were able to coordinate um, actually three-hour conference calls between uh, Ireland and both Wuhan and Lombardy. Um, I think both countries have had completely different experiences. I think Italy didn't quite realise the speed of the tsunami coming up towards them. And they didn't actually have time to implement the public health measures that would be necessary to control the surge. Um, I don't think there's any ICU in the world nor health system in the world that can actually deal with the volume and acuity of the number of patients coming quickly upon them. Um, I also wonder if the kind of cultural in Italy where people are very social and very kind of uh, close and personal may have resulted in more significant uh, severity of illness. We know now that this kind of what we were talking about, the aerosol around or the kind of the uh, social distancing measures, if you don't take them stringently and if you're actually very close in somebody's other personal space, when they're infected, you may potentially get a more severe illness yourself. So that's one of the reasons why we're kind of shouting so loudly. I think we've seen some fairly awful images coming out of the tube stations in London in the past few days, even though they're talking about uh, social distancing in London, we've seen people completely crowded into tube stations. And the concern with something like that is that you won't recognize the consequence of that for about four weeks. So those kind of people crowded upon each other in the tube stations in London, you won't recognize the consequence of that for four weeks time when you'll see a surge in their ICU uh, requirements and the number of young people ending up on ventilators as a consequence of that. So I think China gave us a completely different lesson. They gave us a lot of lessons on how they can suppress this infection, uh, but there are a huge number of economic consequences to the strategies that China has taken as well, you know. China has been very successful actually in getting uh, a huge population down to have zero cases in a seven day period, meaning they actually got a population in one of their districts of more than 400 million people down to zero new cases in seven day period. So I think, you know, they, China and Italy have got very, very different um places where they're at now and they've also got very different public health measures in place. So the the world is now starting to look at China returning to life as it once was. Are doctors there concerned about another outbreak? China is extremely worried about another outbreak. I suppose China has gone with a strong suppression model and suppression means that they've tried to get the cases down to zero. The problem with doing something like that is, one, there's economic repercussions. Two is you have to prevent all travel into and out of the area. And actually, I understand China is going to be introducing complete uh, nation lockdown from, I think, two days time where nobody is going to be allowed to enter China from around two days time except for their own citizens. And they're going to be put on a 14 day quarantine period simultaneously. Anyone that's gone for complete suppression model actually has to keep that in place until there's no cases left anywhere in the world. So there, there will be no tourism industry. There will be huge economic repercussions. And you have to continuously do certain measures that you keep an eye out so that you don't get early reoccurrence. Because we saw how even just one single case, which happened in Italy on the 
30th of January has resulted in where Italy is at at the moment. So one case, because of the virulence and the infectivity of this uh, COVID organism, can actually result in a whole new epicenter. So you really have to keep strong measures in place uh, in a suppression model to prevent an outbreak like this happening again. And the unanswerable question, Ashin, when, when do you think this will end? What, what is going to happen in the year ahead? It's a, it's a very difficult scenario and something that we're learning a lot about. I suppose we, we've talked about different models around the world, China going from a suppression model, England talked about uh, a mitigation or herd immunity model. We're learning a lot about what's called immunomodulation. There's even clinical trials starting out in vaccines, but we're in our very early days. And, and there's also a thing called seroconversion. Seroconversion is where people may have been infected with the organism and actually they may be able to return back to society and no longer be vectors themselves. So there's talk of new blood tests coming through. And again, we're not there yet, but people that may see or convert and may develop antibodies and no longer be infective may actually be able to come back and start a functioning economy and back to a normal society again. So I think, unfortunately, there is no answer to that one yet. But we're learning a lot between the different types of models and we're learning a huge amount in terms of immunomodulation and actually that it's not just the virus causing the illness, it's the consequence inflammatory response that our body takes may actually be as detrimental as the virus itself, particularly in what's called the second biphasic part of the virus. So um, there are going to be new strategies. We're ever learning new medications and treatments. And we're actually, there's a lot of studies going on around the world. The WHO, the World Health Organization, has recently talked about the Solidarity Study, where they're trying to get experience from all the different countries around the world, what medications they're using to see if there's one strategy may be more effective than another. My thanks to Dr. O'Connell and to producers Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. And thanks for listening. Stay up to date with the latest developments at irishtimes.com. We'll be back on Monday.